Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the start of the 16th annual season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. Uh, I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, the senior pastor here at St. Philip Deacon. Thank you for coming out tonight uh, as we begin uh, this year's season. Uh, in 16 years, I'm not sure we've ever made the strategic error of scheduling an event on the night that the Vikings were playing. Um, what was that? Yeah, no one cares, is that what you're saying? Well, I don't, I don't know if last week's game improved, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, I always do like to ask uh, at the outset, how many of you have not been to an, a Faith in Life event in the past? Okay, uh, maybe half of you are so good. Well, a special welcome to you. Um, over the last uh, 15 years, those of you who have been here before, you know we have cast, uh, I like to call it a broad net, um, of speakers. They come from all different backgrounds, all different Christian traditions. The goal of the series is to invite interesting, engaging speakers who can talk in some way about what they do uh, and how it connects to our Christian faith. Um, tonight, we are privileged to have someone, if you read her official biographer, it will have things uh, like an author, uh, more recently a podcaster. Uh, she has planted churches. Uh, she is working hard these days as a leadership coach, especially among women. Um, but I had the privilege of speaking with her uh, a few months ago um, for an interview that, that we actually published recently in a magazine that we've begun here at the church. And so I asked her then what I always ask our speakers, typically on the ride from the airport over here, which is some things that are maybe out of the ordinary. Um, in their life that wouldn't appear on a, a typical bio, and a couple come to mind, one of them relevant to our Twin Cities here, and that, that is that uh, she loves Target. I do. I just do. Correct? Yes, yeah. absolutely. All right. It's wonderful. <laughs> the other story she told me, I don't know if she's going to talk about this tonight, but has anyone been to Melbourne? Or not in Melbourne, Sydney, Sydney in Australia. Uh, so you know the Opera House, of course, there. There's also this uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge, which evidently, if you pay a little bit of money, you can actually climb on, which you would never find me in a million years doing. But she did it, and uh, it was a fascinating experience based on what I understood. Um, and so she's, well, I don't know if you're famous for that, but in your own life, you learned something from it. Um, anyway, we are delighted that she agreed to be with us tonight. Will you help me welcome Joe Saxton? Well, good evening, everybody. It's wonderful to be with you, and it's um, lovely to have the invite, so thank you very much. Um, as you can tell, I'm not from around here. I live in Shoreview, so we, <laughs> we, we sound a little different there. Um, I, um, I grew up in London, in England. My parents are Nigerian, um, and I've lived in the States about 14 years. My children were born here. They were born in Arizona. That was very hot. Very... <laughs> very hot. I didn't realize you could live through 122 degrees. Um, and so we moved. And um, then we lived in California for a little while. Um, that was wild in a different way. And um, then moved to the cities about six and a half, seven years ago. Um, I have two daughters. They are both middle schoolers. Yeah. So <laughs> make of that what you will. I, I feel like the other thing I should have said on my bio is I spend a lot of time taking my children and their friends to various places. I am 
queen carpooler, or I am mum Uber driver, kind of. So that's my other life and career. Um, I think the only thing I will say about the Sydney Harbour Bridge is that it's amazing what you do in the first year of marriage when you're still trying to impress your spouse. <laughs> um, and he had this great idea, this great idea that we would climb this bridge. We, he's had a lot of, he has great ideas. He had this other great idea about snorkeling and there were jellyfish there. But the person who was telling us about the jelly, jellyfish had a particularly thick accent, so he called them yellowfish and was screaming at us. I, I, trying to impress my beloved, went first. He didn't get out of the boat. I'm just going to leave that there. Leave that with you, friends. Leave that with you. So anyway, Sydney Harbour Bridge was amazing. Um, my husband is the one who has a funny thing about heights, so I don't think we'll do it again. But that is, um, that is us. That is us. In terms of tonight, I'm, um, the title that I wanted to reflect on with you is Living Your Own Story. Living Your Own Story. And I have come to believe that stories are incredibly important. Our stories shape cultures, they shape systems, they shape families. How what we think about stories can even determine public policy, private policy. Whose stories are told shape the way we live and the way we function. And so as such, I wanted to think together and to reflect on the power of our own stories and the power of the stories we're used to listening to and hearing. They have the power to elevate and inspire. They have the power to denigrate and destroy. It's vital that we're aware of the stories that we're telling. And when it comes to our own personal lives, it's vital that we're living the story that we actually hoped to live. Is it really our story or is it somebody else's? Is it the story someone would have for us? the story that someone expected of us. There is a um, Nigerian comedian called Gina Yasharain. She talks about Nigerian immigrant families and she says, you know, you don't decide your career. Your family kind of decides your career. You have a few options. You can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, or you can be an absolute disgrace to your family. Those are your options. (laughs) Those are your options. And um, I have to say she had a point because I remember being asked, which one would I like to be? Not if there was anything else. Everything else is a hobby. Which one would I like to be? And the concessions were engineer, accountant. Yeah, that really was it. Those were the options. Those are the ones. Now, you may have heard of a woman called Brony Ware. She was um, an Australian nurse, and she spent years working in palliative care, nursing people in the last 12 weeks of their lives. And if you'll be familiar with her, you'll maybe be familiar with some of her reflections that became a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Happy title. Um, But in the time, she spent a lot of time listening. She spent a, a lot of time talking and hearing the thoughts of those who had so much to say in so little time. And these were the things that she said were the top five regrets. The first one, and she said this was overwhelmingly so. I wished I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And in the interview that I, I, when I first found out about her, it said this, this was the most common regret of all, she said, when people realize that their life is almost over and they look back clearly on it, it's easy to see how many dreams have not been fulfilled. Most people hadn't honored even a half of their dreams and they'd known they knew it was due to the choices they'd made 
or the ones they'd not made. The second one was, I wished I hadn't worked so hard. She said this one um, was one that she heard every man say. The third one, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. And then she spoke of the relationships that reaped an impasse because the crucial conversations weren't had. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And then the last one, I wish that I'd let myself be happier. Fascinating, isn't it? Fascinating. And at that, from that point on, she basically makes everybody ask themselves the questions. Um, what are the regrets that you have? And what would you like to do about them now? When I was reflecting on her, I thought of the stories that I'd heard and known as people were reflecting on their life. One was a woman called Emily May Butterfield. Emily May. She... Um, she grew, uh, many of my stories will be English because I lived there for such a long time. <laughs> she uh, grew up um, a number of years ago and she had a very silent father. She left home determined to be free. She was functionally illiterate. She had been told by one of her teachers she would never be anything, that she was stupid. So she got up. She walked out of the classroom and never, walked, never returned. She was a very strong-willed person. Um, she refused to fall in love. If ever she felt, felt she was getting feelings for someone, she was so afraid, so defined by what she'd grown up in, that she'd run and jump into a lake to shake it off. <laughs> but she loved children. She loved children. And this will um, show the age and the span of history she lived in. She loved children, so she wanted to look after them. And during World War II in England, where, during the era known as the Blitz, um, when the Blitz was happening over London, she had moved outside London at this point and began to take children in to provide a place of safety, provide a, say, a place of home. When the war was ended, she just carried on, carried on. She'd got into it by then. She did all that was required to become a foster mother, did all that was required to look after children year after year after year. When she was in her 70s, and it was the 70s by then, um, she was urged to stop. <laughs> Not because she was doing anything wrong as such, but she was in her 70s by this point. But Emily May wasn't finished with her own story. So in her 80s, she gave up smoking. She'd been smoking since she was 14, but she decided in her 80s it was a filthy habit. <laughs> and so she decided to stop. In her 90s, she decided to do something about the education she didn't have. She went back to school. And at the age of 96, she earned the award of England's most inspiring learner. She'd taken the national exams that 16-year-olds take. And so she got her English and she got her math. We say maths in England. I feel I'm, I'm just going on too long when I'm here, when I say it. And she got her math. And... Uh, <laughs> And then took computer courses and tried new things and discovered new things. She was not done with her story. She was a woman with the gift of a long life. And so by the time she passed, she turned and said her farewells to the children she had fostered, the ones she'd looked out for, 
she bade them her goodbye because basically her mind and her spirit had worn her body out. She passed away at the age of 102, having fully lived an incredibly rich story in the face of adversity and struggle and confusion and loss. Another story, very different person, a person called Gabriel. That's where the similarities with the angels ended. Gabriel was a charmer. He was particularly charming amongst women. He seemed to have a gift that he seemed to use a lot with women. Um, he married young. He had ideas and dreams. And he and his young wife moved and decided to start a new life. The new life that they were planning on living wasn't as easy as they'd hoped. When they moved and emigrated to England, it wasn't as straightforward as they'd hoped. It wasn't an issue of language. They were fluent in English. But the hostility in terms that they'd faced and the racism that they faced began to wear on the soul. Signs in doorways saying no dogs, no Irish, no blacks. And so they stepped away and stepped away. This was not the new world he'd hoped he'd build. Back home, he was respected. Back home, he was somebody. Back home, he had value. Now, who was he? He wasn't the greatest of husbands. Remember the gift he had? It made him active. I'll leave it at that. And he did what he was good at doing. He started a new life for himself. He started a new life, but only this time he left a family behind. But he moved on because that's what he did. He moved on. And only in his later years, and who knows why, Gabriel didn't open up very much. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he couldn't push his memories away any further. Maybe he was, maybe he just decided one day. Maybe it was a vulnerability because he was ill. And that has a way of bringing your own personal reckoning when you no longer have control. Maybe there is no romantic reason, but he decided he was desperate to reach out to his children. He had lots of children, but he knew there were children he'd forgotten. And it was time to wrap up his story. But his story wasn't one that was as illustrious as May's, as Emily May's. His one was one of regret. He lived his own story. He lived it on his terms. It's just that there was a lot of carnage in the way. And so when he finally connected with the children he'd long conveniently forgotten, he wept. And he wept. And he wept. Two very different stories. Two people who never met. Who never met. Two different worlds. But are actually very connected. They passed away five weeks apart. One was my father. The other was my foster mother. Two people, very different stories, very different worlds, living their own stories in their own ways. And as I reflect on their lives, um, and it, they died about 10 years ago now, 10 years ago. Um, May, uh, we used to call her Aunt May. We didn't even know her name was Emily until we saw it in writing years later. Um, May fostered me from when I was a baby until maybe I was about six. We don't really know the entire truth of the matter. Um, 
so by the time I was, I was one of her last children that she fostered in her 70s while still smoking. <laughs> it was the 70s, friends. Apparently, it was just a different vibe. Um, and um, so her story, illustrious end. Dad's story, illustrious end, different end, redemptive end, but different ways of living your story. And for me, it begs the question. It begs the question for me, but as we reflect on, yes, on faith, but also our lives, and also the way our stories intersect, are we living in the freedom and the fullness of our actual story? And if not, is it ever too late to rewrite it? And if we can't rewrite certain things, if it, if it is one long first draft, do you get another chapter? Do you get to write an epilogue? Do you get to correct and maybe with a red pen rewrite or scribble out some things? Stories shape our cultures. Stories shape societies. Stories shape public policy. The stories we hear, the stories we listen to, shape the world around us every day. So what's the story we're living? And what does it have to do with faith anyway? When I think of our own stories, I think of our own worth and I think of our own value. What makes someone important? What makes somebody worth listening to? And I'm struck of our own origin story that we see in the Bible. I'm, stuck, I'm struck by the intrinsic value it places on humanity. Now, depending on where you land theologically, when you think of the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2, for some, they would say that, well, those are the words of Moses to a people who were previously enslaved. They are finally free after generations of abuse and oppression. And he's telling them a new story, reminding them of their worth and value. To others, on a different theological perspective, would say, actually, these words were actually fashioned and formed much later in a post-exilic period. After Babylon for the people of God, the covenant people, telling them their story, telling them their worth. Wherever you land, I find it fascinating that these words were poised, and often so much of the Bible is poised, to the margins, to the people who've lived on the margins, for the people who are on the margins, but also words through the people on the margins as well. And so I want to read some very familiar words to you, or familiar to many of us, and then reflect a little on what it says about our story. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. The image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the, story, all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for food. And I've given every green plant for food as, all, as I've given all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. I wonder if that involves mice. And everything that has life 
And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and it was very good. In this account, the Spirit of God moves across the void, creates out of chaos, brings a new world into existence. Light, day, night, sky, land, waters, vegetation, sun, moon, stars, and then human beings, the zenith. Let us make human beings in our image. Now, the word image, um, and I'm very bad at pronouncing ancient Hebrew, so we'll just see where we get to on that. Um, The word for image, Zalem, means shape or resemblance, the outline of something original, and in practice came to mean a representative figure. The word likeness, being made an image and likeness, was like echoing the understanding of image. It's almost like surround sound, illuminating and just making sure people hear how important this is. That humanity was made with the very imprint of God, the very essence of God. Not that they were gods, but that they had qualities and skills and gifts designed by their creator, delighted in from their creator. But more than that, as his representatives, they had a practical role to play, a contribution to make in their everyday world. To the first hearers, to people who had been stripped of their identity, stripped of their freedom, stripped of their worth and value, oppressed for generations after generations. These words aren't just reassuring, they're entirely radical. To people who had lost everything, who were people in exile, trampled on by one oppressor after another, deemed no one, deemed worthless. These words are radical. Not least because the understanding of the day was that that kind of value belonged to the royals. That kind of worth, it was the royalty that were the sons of gods or were gods. It was Pharaoh's son that was a deity. It was, it was the Babylonian kings and empires and they were the ones who were royalty. They were made in God's image and now these words are saying that even the lowest of the low are seen by God, are valuable to God, are worthy to God. And not only are they valuable, and not only are they worthy, that they have a place to represent him in the world, that they've been infused and imbued with gifts and talents and skills and ideas, that way they have with numbers, that way they have with welcome. Those things that come naturally to them were supernaturally shaped. You mean anybody gets to be important? Anybody's story matters. Anybody gets to be valuable. That these things aren't a concession. And I thought it was just a pretty story telling us how things came to be and why mice exist. As, and wasps. And those, anyway, I digress, friends. I digress. You mean it has some bearing? on who we are and the value they have and it doesn't matter if a teacher says that you'll never amount to anything even if you get up and walk out the room because somehow you're still seen and known and valuable I can't even imagine what it would have been like to hear this description for the first time I can't even fathom what it would have been like for people who'd lost everything 
who had been dehumanised for generations to hear that they were valuable, that they had worth, but not only that they had value and worth, that they had potential. They had a contribution to offer. I find the words simply staggering. And when I think of our world today, and when I think of the way we live our lives today, it makes me ponder their implications. What are the implications of God seeing people with value before they've ever done a thing? Before they've ever got a grade? Before, please God, they've ever scored a touchdown? What are the implications before they ever got anything right? Before they ever got anything wrong? What are the implications on their value when it didn't ascribe that value to a particular class? particular economic bracket, a cultural background, or a colour of skin. That all of those people had value? I can't remember who said the quote um, now, so do forgive me, um, but I know it wasn't me. (laughs) And they said, our words create worlds. Our words create worlds. What worlds were being created for the first hearers, hearers of these words? What worlds are being created when we forget the importance of these words? What worlds are being created if we take these words to heart? I'd like to suggest a couple of things for our own reflection. I'm a passionate person, so I always think my latest idea is the most important one. I say that as my disclaimer. Although I hold that on target, because I still believe that's true about Target. But when I think of our cultural moment, when I think of the moment we're in, I do think that we do need to recapture in our understanding of faith and language the importance of humanity being of value, of being made in the image of God. I think it is one of the most valuable things we could shout from the rooftops. Why? Because dehumanization often starts with language. Dehumanization starts often with language. We see it with Pharaoh describing um, the Hebrews to the Egyptians and why they needed to be enslaved. And I'd love to say it ended there, in the pages of a book. But we know that dehumanization and language is something we've seen again and again throughout history. It me- dehumanization in our language makes certain things allowable. It makes certain things possible. It makes atrocities moral. So during the Holocaust, Nazis described Jews as subhuman. They called them rats, depicted them as disease-carrying rodents. In the Rwandan genocide in the 90s, the Hutus called the Tutsis cockroaches. Indigenous peoples in different parts of the world are described as savages. Some might say noble, but still savages. Serbs called Bosnians aliens. Slave owners throughout history describe people as three-fifths human. Immigrants 
described as infestations. What do we do with rats? What do we do with aliens? What do we do with savages? And what do we justify when we have described people made in God's image that way? It makes me wonder if our voices could do with getting louder about the basic value of human beings. It makes me wonder if we need to remind people that there was never an economic balance on worth. And that sometimes that our assumptions, because language does create assumptions, the stories we tell creates assumptions, that we might want to check them again. Those are the big picture things. But I, I remember one of my friends telling me, and again, English story. Um, um, she was from a Jamaican background. She was in Jamaican background, and we, we became friends in Bible college, and we moved to a city nearby uh, after, after that, and she told me how much she'd wrestled academically. And she said, my teachers believed that I'd be really good at sport, and my teacher believed that I'd be really good at music, and they told me that that's what you people do. Those were the assumptions they were used to. And so they geared her into certain classes. She hates sport. She cannot sing. And she doesn't like to dance. But she could live in a book for months and months. And I remember, we were, I think we were standing in a hairdressing salon, so it was a little awkward. But she just started weeping and weeping because she wasn't seen. Someone had assumed her story. They described value. And I think they thought they were helping. Who knows? On one level, we're all trying to do the best we can. On another level, we do stupid things. And she had to reclaim who she was actually wired to be. She had to reclaim her worth and her value and her potential again. What could we do to make a difference? I would encourage us, wherever we would consider ourselves on a spectrum of faith, or frankly, basically humanity, <laughs> to not settle for a single story about any type of person. It was the author Chimamanda Adichie who said, there is a danger in a single story, not because it's just inaccurate, it's incomplete. When we only hear the stories of particular types of people, particular ethnicities, particular gender, particular economic groups, and we make decisions in the light of that, what are we missing? Where are our lives not being enriched? Emily May Butterfield may never have got a degree, but someone told her story before she had a chance to tell her own. And somehow, though she couldn't read or write, and now when I look back at her handwriting and when we ask for signatures, a lot is making sense, friends. <laughs> wow, my brother taught me how to read, and now I know why. Um, she may never have got a degree. She may not have been all of these other things, but she fostered over 100 children in her life. 
She was a safe place. She was a harbour. She was an anchor. She was a pioneer. She was a trailblazer. She was one who would not forget you, ever. So that even in her dying breath, she makes sure that we heard her goodbye. She was England's most inspiring learner. She was a lifelong smoker until it became a filthy habit. (laughs) There's a danger in the single story if you just looked at the grade. There's a danger in the single story if you just looked at her economic earnings over her life. We would have missed all that that woman could have been if she wasn't so sheerly, well, pig-headed to make sure it happened. And I would encourage us as we function, as we interact with people, that we, won't, we don't settle for a single story. Don't settle for a single story on that young person, on that black person, on that Latina person, on that wealthy person, on that person who looks just like you but may have lived a completely different life to you. Because it seems that in our origin story, we already had value. We were made in the image of God. And we were made to represent him in the world with a contribution to make. That's the big picture. But I also think there are personal implications for this. I hope there are personal implications. I do like to take these things personally. I do hope there are personal implications. And maybe to go back to the questions at the beginning, um, and the question I like to ask, I was that child who asked questions and never stopped. I was that child. And now I have children like that of my own. I understand a lot about life. Uh, And why people were just tired. Uh, Just tired. It's not that I don't want to hear you, Jenna. I need you to stop. But the question I like to ask is, who were you before anybody told you who you were supposed to be? Who were you? What did you love? What did you hate? Are we allowed to say hate? Oh, too late. Um, um, What inspired you? What were the hills you'd die on? What were the duties that were your honour to fulfil? Or the things that broke your heart? Who were you before anybody said what was expected? Before, in my case, I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer. I was going to be a doctor. I did think about it. And then I realised I don't like the sight of blood. And that would make it awkward. Um... And I remember applying to college and writing that, um, applying for law degrees. You major straight away in England. And my sister saying, are you applying to be a lawyer because you want to be? Or are you applying to be a lawyer because you are a Nigerian who's grown up being told that's what we do? Like, probably both. (laughs) I don't know what I want yet. I would encourage us to ask what... um, What's impacted our story? Who's impacted our story? And whether it's too late to write another chapter, an epilogue, a stanza, whether we can replace the period that we put at the end of who we've become and replace it with a comma, a semicolon, if you will. A question I'd ask us to reflect on thinking of what it means to be made in God's image with gifts and talents is what do you do with who you are and the skills you have that way you have with numbers that way you have with welcome that insight and strategy clearly Emily May did not believe in retirement 
and didn't mean that her talents kind of retired on her. She was just warming up. What do we do with the things that we have? And maybe it's not all monetized, but does it mean it's not valuable because it's not monetized? I am, when I think about gifts and talents, I often think of my kids. My kids really do Christmas. And I realized that they'd taken it to a new level the year that they gave me a PowerPoint presentation of all the things they wanted. Um, and my eldest, she, um, I knew with her that number, gift number four was the one she actually wanted. She kind of snuck it in there. With my youngest, and um, she'd just discovered PowerPoint back then, so everything was whizzing onto the page and off the page and screaming at me. I just couldn't read it. It was too much. Um, but when Christmas Day came, we, well, we knew what to do because we'd been instructed and we knew what to tell the relatives who were in England. Or my brother lives in Hong Kong and, and what to send. And when they get there on Christmas Day, they dive in. <laughs> they dive in. It's like silence, parents. And they jump in and unwrap and they're excited. Any of us who've seen a child, a godchild, a niece, a grandchild, and then you see the child who just loves the paper, but... <laughs> They get excited. And yet sometimes I think with our gifts and our talents and our abilities, the skills that a creator delighted to give us, it's like walking past on Christmas Day and we're like... It's a little arrogant to pick that up. Or maybe we open it, put it away. Or we discredit it, we push it behind the tree somehow. We pretend it's not valuable or important. We call it humility, of course, because that's what we do. And it's spiritual that way. But I wonder what would it be like to unwrap the gifts that you have? What it would mean to a friend or a neighbor? What it would mean to a family member? What it would mean for our culture? What it would mean for the child in a school for whom English doesn't come easily, but if someone would help them read? what it would mean for the family who are just trying to make ends meet and would love to get out of debt, but no one ever taught them how to budget. But you have a way with numbers. What it would mean for someone who needs to be welcomed. And they need all the Christmas cookies that you would love to bake. All of them. And then some more. And what it would feel like if your gift impacted their life. Whether you'd remind them of their value too. Or have we left our gifts and talents unassigned under the tree? Left unwrapped for when someone else says they're special? Left um, unwrapped and used and then retired because we were told that that was when it was supposed to stop. That was as though when our value stopped. I do dislike ageism, I have to say. And maybe it's because in a Nigerian culture, your elders are your elders. (laughs) And they are the fount of wisdom, which is a mixed bag, I'm not going to lie to you (laughs) but still and maybe it's because my mother one of my mothers didn't decide when she got told that her gifts weren't worth using anymore what would it look like for each and every one of us to go back to that tree and unwrap the gifts and use them in a hurting world And then finally, 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 
What if your story wasn't a great one? What if your story was like of a man who had a way with the ladies and didn't really do fatherhood very well at all? And when I say at all, I'm really being polite. What if, if you're honest, then maybe there's a moment at three o'clock in the morning or something when you can't sleep and you're restless that you're honest and you know that your story has not just been an interesting one, but it's been a selfish one. And you realize that your story isn't just a painful one, it's, it's one which has inflicted pain on others. What do you do with that story? There are entire chapters that you wish weren't part of the book of your life. And there isn't time, if we're honest, there isn't time. There isn't a way to make every conversation easy again. And all you can do is weep because you know you're desperate. Not necessarily publicly, but you know you're desperate. I would contend that even those stories aren't necessarily finished. I was saying to Tim earlier that I like stained glass windows. I like stained glass windows because part of their purpose was to tell people God's story. Um, And for those, whether you could read or not, you had a glimpse of glory. And in, um, I remember a friend telling me, I will come to land. Uh, I remember a friend telling me, I I, I don't know, I I was going through some drama, probably about a guy, but who knows. Um, And she told me this story that she'd heard, and she said, you know, in England, well, in the United Kingdom and in the area of Northern Ireland, there was an era called the Troubles. And in the Troubles, some devastating things happened, and it would be way too long to explain what the Troubles were about, and I couldn't even honour the situation to do it well. But one of the consequences of that time was domestic terrorism. And there would be bombings and and things detonated, and often around churches. And there was a particular church... And this happened in a few places, actually, but there was a particular church where the building remained, rocked to its foundations, but all the stained glass windows were blown out. And what the priest did is he went out into the community and he found the glass. And he found the glass, the big pieces and the tiny pieces, and he put them together and they made a new window. The story of God in that community was not done. It may not have been what it was, And maybe we had nostalgic moments about that stained glass window that was in the corner. But there's a shard of it still here. There's a new story. And when I think of our stories and the call to live our stories and the influence our stories have on other stories and the regret that can leave us with, it can leave us hopeless. But I do think of the big arching meta story, meta narrative of our faith that there is a great high priest who picks up the shards of broken lives, the big pieces and even the imperceptible ones and creates a new window for the sun to shine through. And so although Gabriel's story was not the most wonderful, although it was not the most, um, it wasn't even the happiest really, there was still a possibility for a redemptive reconciliation at the end. There was still a chance for a new beginning. And I believe both in our culture, in our public discourse, in our public policies, 
in our schools, in our communities, in our neighbourhoods, on social media, which sometimes is frankly a dumpster fire, that there is an opportunity for redeemed stories, for new stories which declare people being made in God's image, declare their worth, that welcome the broken. I believe in our personal lives, if we've lost sight of who we are and we're filled with regret, that there is still a redemptive story that can be ours. I believe that no matter how many pieces our stories have been blown into, that there is one who can piece it back together and give us a new one. I don't know how our stories began and I don't know how they end, but I would encourage us, both publicly, in our communities, to tell new stories and to tell good ones, to remind people of their worth and value. But I'd remind us personally to acknowledge that we get to write a new story too. And may that new story, new every day, influence the world around us and remind people of their value. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to have Joe come back up here in just a couple of minutes uh, and take questions from all of you. Uh, so if you had some uh, that came up while you were listening to her, please formulate those and you can come up uh, to the mic to my left or my right. Uh, as someone who does a series similar to this in New York uh, City says when he invites people to come up, he says, make sure you end with the right um, punctuation mark. The point being, you're not coming up to give a speech, but to ask a question. <laughs> All right, uh, a few things before, while we let Joe rest her, her uh, voice for two seconds. If you look on the inside uh, front cover, you will see the rest of this year's season for Faith and Life. Uh, the next speaker coming up is Becca Stevens. Becca is actually someone we've thought about inviting for a long time, and we finally uh, were able to make it happen. Uh, she is the founder of an organization called Thistle Farms. Has anyone heard of Thistle Farms out there? Uh, Becca was uh, the victim of some uh, abuse early in her life, and she founded Thistle Farms to serve those who had been similarly abused. Um, Joe has actually traveled with her and maybe can say a good word about her, but she's going to be fabulous. So please come back for that. It's uh, October 25th, again, 7 o'clock here in this sanctuary. Um, if you would like and do not already get updates about our events, please sign up for our emails. Uh, there are instructions on how to do that either here or you can send a note to me. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook. So I encourage you to sign up for that. Um, I always uh, like to say a few thank yous at these gatherings. Um, uh, thank you certainly to our sponsors. Um, they are listed uh, in this uh, program. Uh, I'm not going to list all of them or name all of them, but many of them are here. And I, from the very, very beginning of this series 16 years ago, uh, these events have made, been made possible not through the budget of the church, which uh, serves as the convener of these, but entirely through the gifts of local organizations and individuals. We could not do it without them. Many of them are here tonight. Will you join me in thanking them for making this possible? Uh, 
Uh, I also want to thank uh, Subtext Bookstore, which has been a partner of ours there in St. Paul, an independent bookstore. Uh, they will have copies of jo one of Joe's books, I should say, the, the Dream of You, available for sale out in the narthex. Uh, Joe's also going to hang around and she will be happy to inscribe those. So thank you uh, to Gary, wherever you are, somewhere out there. I'm grateful to you. Uh, Jeff Elstead, thank you. Uh, Jeff has been with us from the very beginning and plays the intro and the outro music, which actually someone was entering tonight. I'm not making this up. They said, I always get here early so I can listen to the beautiful music. Uh, so Jeff, thank you for that. We're grateful to you. And then finally, I do want to say a word of thanks to all of you for coming. Um, I'm passionate about this series. I think it's important. I think that the people we are able to bring in are amazing, and it is a gift to the community. But we wouldn't do them if no one came. So thank you for coming out, even when the Vikings are playing. Um, and if you've enjoyed it, please tell a friend. Uh, I really do think these are valuable and important conversations, and we'd love to continue to see it grow. So thanks to all of you for coming out. Uh, this evening. All right, uh, Joe, I'm going to invite you back up. Uh, and if there are those of you who have some questions, please make your ways to the microphones. And don't be shy. Sometimes it takes a while to get this started. All right. Oh, you've gone. Okay. So What's I'm that? really answering these questions. You're not answering any. I other. was not going to answer your okay. questions for That's you. That's fabulous. No. Thank you. That's not the way it works. <laughs> Uh, first of all, thank you very much. You're very engaging speaking, and I'm going to break the rules by making two comments before my question. Okay. Um, obviously, God's gift to you is public speaking. You are excellent at it, and I hope you never quit. And also, I believe he gave you a gift of words, because the words you choose in your stories are just wonderful, and it kind of takes it to a different place, so thank you. So this is kind of off topic a little bit, but I'm dying of curiosity. What is your educational background? Oh, my educational background. Well, I went to school, and uh, um, I did, um, in, in England you major straight away, you kind of narrow way earlier than you do in the US, so at 16 you take um, like a basic set of exams, and then you, can, then you narrow down to three or four subjects, so mine was history, and English language and literature, religion, theatre studies, and then I ended up doing biblical studies at college um, for a few years, did biblical languages, stuff like that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So I no, I didn't do law at all. <laughs> I'm just a big fan. I'm just a big fan of Target. I just love it. No Target. I'm really into Target. I, I'm like one of my friends work, worked in head office and she as a treat invited me in and I couldn't be taken anywhere I was that embarrassing I just love it I mean I'd make friends on a Sunday night there who are target friends it's like a village it's like, it's like a village I should stop because I can't stop I may even pop in like I used to say when my kids were babies I'm like play date time we're going to target they're like who's there and I, target's there that's all we need to know so yeah it's, I'm just a fan there's nothing really like it in the UK. No, I haven't quite gone to the dark side yet, <laughs> and that I I feel that's a brink I shouldn't go to. But um, I'm probably there. <laughs> I'm close. So I actually work for Target. <laughs> Yay! <laughs>
<laughs> um, I, I uh, recently took on a very large design team, um, and I'm kind of a, I'm newly Christian. I, um, I was Catholic, raised Catholic, and, and kind of found my faith in the last few years. Um, and as I've been exploring like leadership, uh, I've been following you, uh, and um, I'm just curious because I know you do coaching as well. So yes. can you talk a little bit about that and how might someone like myself contact you for oh. something? Okay. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I think I've always been quite passionate about leadership because leaders seem to get things done. And I think leaders take many shapes and many forms. Um, that, and I think part of that whole thing of us having a contribution to make is what would it, um, what would it look like to use it? I think it's John Maxwell who says leadership is influence. And um, my friend and I, Steph, we, host, we do a podcast called Lead Stories and we talk about leadership being, being intentional with your influence, wherever it is. Um, and so we, I'm always excited about seeing people, whether, whether it's your, with your neighbours or in your place of work, what does it look like to be intentional with the influence you have there? Um, and, but what I did find as I began to lead in this, in this context in the US, I uh, no, it was true in the UK too, but it, it, explore, it unpacks differently. I would find that num particularly with women often apologising, like beginning with the word sorry, uh, and when they were describing their talents and abilities. And, and, I, and I don't mean in the sense of being demure about it. I mean apologising for its very existence. Um, and I would often find people feeling kind of conflicted about their talents and their skills if they didn't fit into what they felt was their cultural box. Now, I, I'm from a different cultural box, so you always see things slightly differently when you're looking in, don't you? Um, and I think the coaching desire came out of that. So we, ha we host, um, I host like two-day leadership events with women <coughs> with a faith background at this stage. I mean, I speak everywhere, but th those ones are kind of designed particularly for women to basically reclaim their voice um, to feel confident in who they are, and some of them are women in ministry, others are creatives, entrepreneurs. There's one of my friends who's coming, and she's one of the leaders, is like this homeschooling extraordinaire. I mean, she's like, amazing, kind of <laughs> a phenomenal woman. But all of them very different, expressing their talents in different ways, but wanting to get, all, in some ways, get some of the internal obstacles out of the way so they could just get on with it. So that's what I do, yeah. Sorry. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Uh, I just got a question about that you're the founder of this Elzer Collective. Oh, yes, Elzer Collective. Could you kind of touch on how you got started on this and what your goals and skills are for the people that you work with? Yes, so the ASA, yeah, the ASA Collective um, is basically the kind of physical embodiment of what I was just sharing before. In terms, and I, I mean, I started about a year or so ago. I, kind of, I started unofficially for a while. And again, it was gathering women into groups who um, were leaders and feeling stuck. And so a lot of it was help listening to them and, and kind of hearing back what they were saying. I'd been involved in coaching informally for a number of years because I'd done Myers-Briggs training and, and was a practitioner in that. And so when I was working with churches, we'd often use some of those tools. Um, but there wasn't, I, there wasn't a tool for confidence in, this, in a particular way. <laughs> there were tools about skills and, and um, about personality, but to have someone hear you, uh, I think felt like a different skill people needed and the women I was working with needed. So we have two-day intensives. Um, we, uh, we've got two in the Twin Cities later this year and then some we're, we're doing one in Alaska. 
I'm particularly excited about that for a reason I'll tell you in a minute, other than it's Alaska. But, um, but um, the goal with all of them is to just to give people, give these women leaders space to reflect, to audit how they're doing, to, le- to network, because often it's lonely, leadership can be lonely and isolating, and to give them the chance to connect. What I've often found is when people give, are given the space, a lot of it takes care of itself. And so last year we did it and we found people started sponsoring each other and one business here is like, this is how I can come alongside your nonprofit. I've got these skills. Let me help you run a budget. Or I've got these skills. Let me help you with this. Or here's a recipe for when you're really, really busy and you have no time and you really want your kid to try one vegetable. Just one. Have that. And so it was that, it was that range of skills. And so that's how the ASA Collective was born. And I called it the ASA Collective. ASA because that's the word um, we found in the Hebrew for helper. Um, and in Genesis 2, it talks about being a helper, and I, the word is way more expansive than we've often given it credit for. It's um, a verb as well as a noun, meaning to protect, surround, defend, and cherish, a combination of words meaning to rescue and to be strong and to save, and um, a collective because I've written, and I think probably partly my own ethnicity is used to doing things by village. Um, takes a village to raise a child, takes a village to raise a leader, takes a village to exist. Um, I think part of the thing that drew us to the cities and to Minnesota was seeing generations of family. Um, now, you guys might not like it as much, but I, I like to look at it. Um, and, and that sense of there are things that we do collectively that help. Um, the reason why I'm excited about Alaska is because my friend there was working with um, a number of women who'd come out of trafficking, and one of the survivors is coming as a leader. And she said, I don't want a scholarship, and I don't want anything. I'm owning the contribution that I now get to make. And I think for me that it, it sums up the potential that was never seen that someone's able to grasp hold of to make their own contribution. So do you get together after you've done this? Uh... Yeah, a number of them have coaching groups that they stay connected to. Um, a lot of it we've done online. Um, some... I, I, do, I see on Facebook the reunions that people do all by, by themselves, but we're kind of building a network alongside it as well, because once people start the relationships, they want to keep them. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, hi. Hi. As uh, someone who grew up uh, with foster care as part of your life experience, if someone was considering being a foster parent, what advice would you have for them? I would... Ooh, what advice would I give? I would say, <clears throat> I would say when you talk to the social workers and all the organisations that, that um, tell you about foster care, listen. Listen to how hard it is. Um, l- ask yourself whether you have the capacity to let somebody go um, and to let them go permanently, knowing that it may not be a great home, but it's good enough. Um, are you ready to absorb the dysfunction um, that, that child, the trauma the child has? Um, and you may not be ready, <laughs> you may not be, know what you'll be ready for, but I'd also look at your family life and look at each member of that family and what it means for each member of that family. I think those would be the, the I think you've got to go in with your, I've known people run ahead with their heart and not their minds and not their, the reality of their circumstances and then the guilt that they feel when it doesn't work out the way that they'd hope is very hard to carry. Um, but, I, I mean, if you're wanting a really simple, straightforward life, I'd say don't bother. <laughs> i say no, um, don't bother. And, um, and I think I would say you don't forget them. And they don't forget you. They don't forget the impact that you've made. Whether, and I would say that from not just from my own experience, but the people I know 
who've also been fostered, it's a significant chapter. So if it is something that's a right thing to do, and I mean, it's always going to be a sacrifice because life does that. But, um, but I would say that it's, it's an incredible way to make a difference in somebody's life. I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but, <laughs> but that's, I would say that. Do we have a uh, final question from anyone? Oh, okay. Hello, um, thanks for speaking. Um, at what age did you discover that you had a gift and how did you discover it? In terms of communication and stuff? And mm -hmm. Very reluctantly. I discovered it very reluctantly. Um, I think I would say I was the last to know. I was the last to know that I was a leader of any kind. Um, I was just getting, what I describe as getting on with it. Um, but I've, I had this, I kind of had this moment like you sometimes see in movies when a character looks back and they have flashbacks of all the things that had happened in their life. And um, I didn't feel, I didn't feel very confident. I do remember having a very distinct conversation in prayer with God saying I would never speak publicly. So that didn't work very well at all. <laughs> and I will take that up with him at some point about the listening thing. Um, but um, I think in my teens, I... I I was, um, my teachers were very good at cultivating. They were really, I, I mean, I'm still in touch with one of them. Very good at seeing what I was good at and would encourage me with things. My youth pastors were very good at encouraging me with things. And because they knew I struggled with saying no to things back then, they'd just give me opportunities. Um, but I would say it was something that was uncovered over a number of years. And, and then I finally had to agree with what I was seeing before my eyes. And, I, and you know that thing about the regret, the, the number five regret of the dying was, I wish I'd let myself be happier. I think I had to let myself enjoy it. Mm. I had to let myself think, actually, I'm good at this. I enjoy doing this. It makes me laugh. Go with it. Um, and, but that took quite a while. That took quite a while to go. I was more like, I, w I used to actually be physically sick. I was like, no, I need to, I, I, it just wasn't. I wasn't well with it. I'll, I'll leave it there. Too much information. <laughs> um, but yeah, I found, I found that being, again, community, having community around you who cultivate you, who encourage you, who are your cheerleaders, all of those things were huge for me in discovering that this was something I could do. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, if there are no more questions, again, Joe is going to be out, don't go away. Okay. Um, she'll be out in the back uh, and was happy to sign books or take questions one-on-one, uh, -on -one, I'm sure. Again, I want to thank all of you for coming out. And Joe, we are so delighted that you were able to be with us tonight as a small token of your time with us. We've got a little granite plaque, uh, which says, with thanks to Joe Staxton for bringing faith to life. We thank you oh, very, thank very you much so for much. being here. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.